set in Zico Romance is earning her a strong following, both in her Australian homeland and with readers in the United States, and it's not difficult to see why. Her books celebrate some of Australia's most remarkable locations, from the Daintree Country to the Great Barrier Reef, and that's the setting for her latest book, Osprey Reef. Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler, and in Binge Reading today, Annie talks about her passion for her homeland that drives her romantic adventure stories. Every story comes alive with scenes from the remarkable Australian landscape. We've got three ebook copies of Osprey Reef to give away to three lucky readers. Enter the draw on our website, thejoysofbingereading.com or on our Binge Reading Facebook page. Entries do close October 19, so enter now. Before we get to Annie, just a reminder, you can support the podcast for the equivalent of a cup of coffee a month and get exclusive bonus content, access to behind-the-scenes stories, tips about who's coming up next so you can read the books ahead of time, and insights into the featured authors in the Getting to Know You quickfire questions. All a great deal of fun. Check it out on patreon.com forward slash the joys of binge reading. And if you've got any doubt about it, just check on the website. But now, here's Annie. Hello there, Annie, and welcome to the show. It's so good to have you with us. Hello, Jenny. It is so good to be here. How many years later? Two, three years it's been? That's right. Well, this is your third appearance here. That is a record. Nobody else has been on three times. The first time was to talk about your work, and then the second time, two years ago, was very graciously to act as host for the show when we had a 100th episode birthday. And do you know, in December, we're going to be having our 200th episode birthday. So that's how long ago it's been. How fabulous. <laughs> Look, um, you've been busy writing away all of those two years and your latest book is very much in your tradition of the echo adventure romance genre and it is called Osprey's Reef and it's related to one of the um, formations on the Great Barrier Reef. Tell us about the attraction for you of these romances set in memorable Australian settings. Well, Jenny, we spend a lot of time travelling around this beautiful country of ours and it's normally I will find a setting that resonates with me and I will think, oh, I could set a book there. And then I find an issue that threatens that setting and then I populate it with my characters and then I give them their conflicts and it usually works like that. Osprey Reef was very different. The motivation for Osprey Reef was actually the boat, which in Osprey Reef is called the Lady Stella II, and uh, it is based on a real boat called the Elizabeth 
E2, which is a boat exactly the same as Stella that operates out of Mackay that actually belongs to one of our family members and a, a, a nephew. And uh, my husband's done quite a few fishing trips on it and every time we go up I climb onto the Lizzie and I wander around and I look at, oh, what a beautiful old timber boat and I fell in love with the boat. And coincidentally, about three years ago, our nephew rang up and said to my husband, who as a hobby has got all of his maritime qualifications, even though he was still working as a school teacher, and he said, I have a trip out to Osprey Reef, which is a long way offshore. It's, it's actually on the edge of the continental shelf. And he said, I need a decky and, you know, just a, a love job. Ian took long service leave from his teaching job and he went on a three-week week trip out to Osprey Reef. So he was my researcher for the actual setting because I'm too much of a squib to go so far offshore <laughs> out in the ocean. So my research was very much involved with the boat itself and Ian's research was the actual setting, plus I found a wonderful DVD called Osprey Reef. Um, it might even be a David Attenborough. And I was able to go there myself on screen. So it was actually the boat that inspired it. And then, of course, my eco-adventure, my ecological and environmental issues that I won't give away in our interview because there's a couple of different ones in the story and the story all came together from that. So my original inspiration was the boat. <laughs> it's interesting because it did seem to me reading it that you were also very well versed in a lot of the actual nautical side of things because one of your heroines is a female captain of that boat and, of course, she has to really, really understand sailing and how to dock a boat and all of those sort of the principles of navigation how did you cover that area well we spend a we have our own small fishing boat here so I'm familiar with you know port and starboard and lights and what all of those things mean I actually went out on the Lizzie with set the nephew's other captain and I did a trip from the Whitsunday Islands down to Mackay and sat up in the wheelhouse with him saying what's this for what's that do why have you got that light on who are you talking to now so I actually had a hands-on trip but I'd like to give credit to a, a girl who was actually an editing client of mine about five years ago who kindly gave me her manuscript called Some Sailors Do Wear Skirts. And Courtney was actually the inspiration for Bethany, my character, because Courtney was the first commercial fishing captain in Australia. And she worked up in the Gulf of Carpentaria. And I refer to a couple of experiences in the book and they had actually happened to Courtney and I got permission from her to use her actual experiences. So Bethany was very, her maritime experience was very much based on ex the real experiences of a female shipping captain. When we go up to the Whitsundays, I think over the last 20 years, we've done 10 bare boat charters out to the islands and, you know, I have to help put up the sail or put the anchor chain down or look at the charts. So I think by osmosis, I've picked up a lot of maritime knowledge. So a bare boat charter is when you take, you hire a boat and sail it yourself. Yes, that's yeah, right, yeah, yes. Yeah. Yep. So with just for people who aren't quite familiar with the Aussie environment, you live in New South Wales, don't you? That's correct. Yeah. Halfway between Sydney and Brisbane on the coast. And But you do a lot of travelling around the countryside for your research, and we'll get onto that a little bit later. 
Just getting back to Osprey for a moment, how long does it take to get out there from the coast? How- uh, I think it took a week. They call it steaming. It's the nautical term. You steam out, even though you don't have a steam engine. It takes about, I think, to, you've got to go from the marina at Mackay up to Cooktown, then refuel, top up with water, get provisions. And then, then I believe these days, it's I think it's three to five days to get out there. And what is the particular significance of that reef on the overall barrier reef. Is there a special... Oh, it's an incredible dive site. It's actually got canyons um, where the canyons go down right over the edge of the continental shelf. And um, surprisingly, the coral, when my husband was out there and he was snorkelling, he was very surprised to see that a lot of the coral degradation that closer to the coast we blame on agriculture run- runoff, the coral out there was even bleaching so far away from the shore. So, you know, it's the ocean temperatures. And he was very surprised to see a lot of the coral was dead even that far off the coast. Yes, yes. So your book is a dual timeline story which moves between three generations in one family from the 1930s to the present day. And that is a structure that you've used in quite a number of your stories, the dual timeline element. What's the attraction for you an author? I, I think I like placing my characters in a very strong family environment. Family is very important to me. I think it's what drives me, very family-oriented. And the lovely thing about Stella, my character in the 1930s, you'll recall that she begins her, oh, she's introduced to the story in a billiards hall in a place called Mount Perry in the 1930s. Well, that was actually based on true family story. My great-grandfather owned the billiard hall, billiards hall in Mount Perry in the early 1900s, about 30 years before, and uh, I contacted the Mount Perry of the North Burnett Council and they were wonderful. They sent me photos of the town, the layout of the streets, so all of the parts in those first chapter or two where Stella's in Mount Perry and walking to the railway station and leaving their home and going to the billiards hall is all absolutely factual based on the real town. So to me, when I've got that sort of detail, it makes my characters and their settings very real and I think it gives them more depth. So to get back to your question about the dual timelines and the three generations, we've got Stella, then we've got Lars, her son, then we've got Eric, his son, and then we've got Bethany. So it touches in depth on the two generations, but we do learn more about the generations between two, just with family anecdotes and a bit of dialogue. And I think it all contributes to the development of the mystery that I'm solving in the contemporary times. Yeah, that's right. The other thing I found quite fascinating, I hadn't really been aware of it, was a possible suggestion that Chinese navigators were in that area before the Europeans, the Portuguese. Yes, it's a very alternate view of history. It's not one that's given much credence, but we talked about it in the dialogue with Peter in the book. I did a lot of research on it. I think it's very much a popular history. But there also is apparent, or there are apparently some maps 
maps, Chinese maps in the National Library of Australia. So it just gives that little bit of mystery to it that, you know, maybe it is true. And because they were wooden or timber junks, there would be no, you know, shipwrecks or anything left. They would be totally disintegrated by now. So there's no actual way to prove apart from the mysterious finds in my story. <laughs> there'd be no way to find that they it was actually a true journey or true voyage. Yes. Yeah. But I like to throw it in and I like to inform because I, I, did, I wasn't aware of that until I started my research and, you know, I think a lot of people go, oh, that's interesting when they read it. I, I certainly did. That's right. And the other aspect of it that fascinated me was your mention about coral spawning and the fact that, in fact, it hadn't even really been studied uh, scientifically until around about the 1980s. Scientists yes. Became, that seems incredibly recent for something so important. I, I was really surprised to see that and I did a lot of reading on it. And one of the things that I tend to do rather than reading popular nonfiction is I go into the academic sites and I read the scientific journals and uh, I'll just digress a little bit here back to Andara my last book I did a lot of academic research about the um, insects and things like that and about three weeks ago I had an email from a gentleman whose parents used to own the station where the actual volcanic crater was located and he said that he had been contacted by the original female botanist who came out uh, not botanist um what's the word I'm trying to think of Oh, yes, entomologist, who had researched the original tubes in the 1980s and she'd heard of my book and she wanted a copy to read it. And she was actually one of the academics whose, one of, whose articles I'd read that were published back in the 80s. So it's been sent over to her in Germany. She's a German entomologist and I'm waiting with bated breath to hear whether I got it right or not. Oh, look, how wonderful. Yes, look, moving on to Andara because... It follows a very similar kind of pattern to Osprey's Reef, very important cave formation. And these are, these are genuine live cave formations and will give people information about how they can go and visit them if they want to. But set in a cave forma formation west of Townsville in, in upper, the, the northern part of Queensland, how did you even hear about these things? How, how were you first uh, connected well, with it them? It was another serendipitous moment in my writing life we were traveling from and it's funny the way I refer to it we were traveling from diamond sky research <laughs> over to daintree research over to daintree edits we'd been this is about oh six years ago we'd been to Kununurra and the Kimberley and I'd been researching for the diamond mine story and prior to that the Daintree rainforest story was in edits. So we'd left Kununurra and we were travelling on a, a back road called the Savannah Way. And we stopped at a caravan park because the day was drawing to a close. And back in those days, we didn't even have a caravan. We had a canvas camper trailer that we'd put up every night. So we booked into the um, caravan park and they were lovely people. And they said, oh, you know, would you like, we've got homemade pies and pasties for lunch. And oh, that's lovely. And then she said, would you like to book in for dinner and we went dinner and she said yes down the back for $12 a head we have corned beef and white sauce and vegetables and just I would love to all you do is bring your plate and your, your wine and then um 
she said, and there's a lovely shop at the back, and Jenny, you'll be able to see this, this dress that I actually have on, I bought in the caravan park at the Mount Surprise in the back of Outback Queensland about five years ago, and it was coincidental. I didn't mean to put it on today. Anyway, that was all organised, dinner and dress, and we bought a book on frogs at the bookshop. It was an incredible little place. And then she said, do you want to go on a tour? And we went, a tour to where? Because we're in a a dry paddock in the middle of the outback. And she said, to the tubes. And we went, what tubes? (laughs) And she said, the Andara Lava Tubes. And I'd never heard of them. And when I do library talks, it's 50-50. 50% of the people will say, oh, we've been there, they're amazing. And the other 50% say, we've never heard of them. Mm. And we did the tour. I was walking up the hill to the volcanic crater. The guide was telling me about the cocky apple trees. And I said, oh, the Indigenous people in the Daintree use them to treat burns. And he said, how did you know that? And I said, oh, I'm an author. And he said, well, you might be interested to hear that 90% of the tubes have never had humans in them. They've only just started to be explored. And who knows what's down there? And it was ka one of those moments. And that's when Erin developed and became an entomologist. Now, um, just for those who haven't heard of the lava tubes at all, give us a little bit of a, a quick sur- sort of um, explanation about their significance and what they're like. Well, it was a volcano that erupted 160 million years ago, halfway between Cairns and Townsville on the northern Queensland coast and about 260 kilometres inland. And when they spewed out, the lava sat on top of the ground because it's very flat ground and the lava went out for two or 300 kilometres towards the Newcastle Ranges and formed like tubes. And over the millions of years, these tubes disintegrated and they've turned into caves and tree roots and there's lots that are still sealed, there's lots that are open. And actually two or three months ago when we were up in North Queensland researching my 2023 book, we went back to Andara and visited and the owner of the, it's called the Andara Experience, actually heard that we were there and that I was Annie Seaton who'd written the book and he made a point of seeking me out and sitting with me and telling me how much he loved the book and how many people have come to Andara since they've read the book, which was wonderful. Oh, great. Yes, fantastic. So you can actually... When you walk, you can walk inside some of them, and it's oh like- yes, they have they've turned. It's very much more tourist catered for tourists now than it was five years ago. There's uh, wooden steps going down. There's boardwalks, and when we were there this year, it was really fascinating because we went into one of the big caves, and they had a lot of rain up there last summer, and the caves flooded. And the guides and the locals, or the people that work at the experience and the owners, were actually snorkelling in the caves. (laughs) So when we got there, the water had drained away, but we were still able to walk knee-deep, took our shoes off and walked knee-deep along the boardwalk in this water. So it was just an amazing place. Tell us about some of the very unusual insect life that they're finding in those caves. Well, my little insect that Emlyn found, my little white thing that stood up with feelers, that was totally imaginary. I created that insect. (laughs) But the insects that they found, I can't remember the name now, it starts with C because I was researching the um, lady who was there in the 1980s and they did actually discover insects that they hadn't found anywhere else apart from the lava tubes that are also in Hawaii and they're called cave-dwelling insects. 
They're a special species. And they adapt to living underground without any light. Without light, yeah. 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 And sometimes little air, you know, there's very low levels of oxygen, high levels of carbon dioxide, so it's very dangerous. And that was a fun part of the research too. (laughs) One one um, theme that there is with these books is that you like to have strong female characters, don't you? I do. And, you know, it's interesting. It's something I haven't given actual thought to and it's not, okay, I'm going to create a character who is a strong female. It's just the the women that populate my stories are born like that and they, they're like that. And my very first book back in 2010 was a book called Winter of the Passion Flower, and my heroine in that, quite a few of the reviewers didn't like her because she was so strong, and I loved her. <laughs> so that was a that was a steampunk time travel novella. That one, oh, yeah, right. it's still selling selling along today. People still buy it and read it. <laughs> it's lovely. Now you've mentioned once or twice about your research, but for people who aren't quite so familiar with your lifestyle. Tell us a bit about the way you go about your research. You actually go on the road, don't you? Yes, we do. Well, most of my books so far, my eco-adventure romances, Kakadu, Daintree, Diamond Sky, and then With Sunday Dawn and Undara, uh, yeah, those five have been, again, books that have been inspired by me seeing a setting. I hadn't gone there with the intention of creating a book there. So there have been somewhere that has really hit me as we've been there. So this year we actually headed off to Cooktown right up in the north of Queensland because I had had a reader because of COVID my library talks with Andara were some of the library talks were by Zoom, which meant some of my international readers could come along, which was great. And my reader from the Lakes District in the UK was telling me about her husband's aunt, who again was a botanist up in Cooktown in the 1930s and 40s, and another very strong, fascinating woman. So we deliberately headed off this time to the setting planning to research it and in the way that my stories work it wasn't right the setting was lovely but I discovered that this actual character real character her name was Vera Scarth Johnson and I actually bought her book of beautiful drawings she recreated all of the botanist on the endeavor Captain Cook's boat and did a, a recreation of them but she is absolutely revered by the community and there's actually a gallery in the botanical gardens in Cooktown called the Vera Scarf Gallery. And once I started doing my research, I realised that I could not fictionalise this character. She was too much of a real person and I didn't think it would go down well. So we went all the way to Cooktown to research a book that's not going to happen. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, so usually just a serendipitous, wow, look at this place, smell that air, feel that wind on your skin, look at that landscape and the setting comes that way. But you're particularly sophisticated grey nomads because you, you you sort of camp out and 
do a little ticky tour while you're you're on the road, don't oh, you? We we are. Well, we started off with the well, we started off with a tent, but we only had that for a week. We went to try it out, and when we were in the tent, I just looked at my husband, and he said, "Come on, we'll go and buy a camper trailer." <laughs> <laughs> so the, the first, I think, uh, Kakadu, Daintree, Diamond Sky, and some of under, and the first Andara research were all done from a camper trailer. Then we upgraded to a caravan that had a shower and toilet and kitchen. Then we upgraded to a little bit more off-road caravan that was a bit stronger. And then last year during COVID, we upgraded again. So we now have the perfect van for our travels. It can go off-road. So last year we went, the year before last actually, we went out to Alice Springs and I'm probably preempting one of your questions here. My... Um, 2022 book is hopefully going to be called Ruby Gap. That's what I want to call it. But at the moment, the publisher is talking about calling it East of Alice. Anyway, it's set East of Alice Springs and we took our off-road caravan out there um, two years ago and found the most incredible isolated remote locations. And I've just finished writing that book about two weeks ago. That's fantastic. We can talk about that. We usually round off by talking about what your next project Mm -hmm. is. So I'd like to get into that a bit when we do that. You mentioned about an international audience and I've been quite interested to see that Australian books in general seem to be gaining more and more international attention. And I must admit, I'm thinking a little bit about the crime area because I've become aware that there are sort of almost new genres like rural noir and outback noir that are being developed by people like Chris Hammer and Gary Disher, both of whom we've got on the podcast uh, in coming weeks. But in your area, you are also obviously attracting some international interest. Yes, it's it's interesting. My original publishing journey um, started with two US digital publishers back about 10 years ago. So I built up a solid US audience of ebook readers until 2015 when Kakadu Sunset, my first print book with Pan Macmillan, was published and in the stores. And gradually from 2015 until about last year, I saw my Australian audience rise because they could see um, my books in the stores. They were interested in that outback rural romance eco-adventure. But it's been a very interesting year this year. And I'd, I'd like to know what's causing it. And I'm trying to do some research into it. But as you know, there's all sorts of programs, where you, software where you can analyse your sales. And for the first time this year, my US sales have now equaled and some weeks, like my Australian sales are about 47% and my US sales are back to about 53%. So I don't know what's caused that. If it had been a couple of months later, I could have said, I'm very excited that With Sunday Dawn is actually being released in print in the US in December. But it's a little bit early for that to have been making an impact because it's not been released yet. Yes. So, yeah. yeah. So, yes, the US audience is growing. It's the UK audience I cannot get into. I have some readers in the UK who love my books, but I can't crack that big time. Apart from audio, my audio books are published by Alviscroft in the UK and sell really well. So they listen to my books. Oh, that's wonderful. That's great. Look, turning away from talking about the specific books for a little bit more about your life, and 
I, I know a little bit about your life. Tell people you've only been writing for about the last 10 years or so. What were you doing before that? And how did you make the transition to being a full-time writer? I was a high school principal. Uh-huh. And I used to spend a lot of time writing dry and dusty submissions. So I had the gift of language. <laughs> but I think, you know, for all of my life, I've been an avid reader and I've all, I'd always wanted to be an author. So when I retired young, because it just got very, very, very difficult being a high school principal and I wasn't enjoying it as much as I thought I would. So um, I decided to retire and someone said to me, what are you going to do now? And I said, well, I've always wanted to write a book. And I wrote my first little winter of the passion flower that I made $19 worth of sales with Lyrical Press, which was a sale. (laughs) And then um, I picked up a contract with Entangle Publishing and my book Holiday Affair, for some reason, was just a breakout book and I sold 106,000 copies in ebook in the US with my first book. So um, that was a pure contemporary romance. And then I had another 12 books with Entangled and then I sent an idea and 5,000 words to Pan Macmillan and I was very fortunate in that I got a three-book print deal with Pan Macmillan Australia for Kakadu, Daintree and Diamond Sky with no manuscript written and no agent, which is really surprising. Oh, that's fantastic, and, yeah. And that was the the, the start of my my career was, you know, just I think I'll write a book and here I am 11 years later with 50 books under my belt. I think oh, and that'll be one, two, three, oh, probably the seventh book in the shops, Osprey Reef will be. So I'm in stores in Australia and New Zealand. The Paper Plus in New Zealand has my books, which is lovely. And I've now tended to go back to more to independent publishing I find I like the control of the marketing and the content of my books. So I'm a bit of a hybrid author, a foot in each camp. Which is the the sweet spot to be for authors, isn't it? To have it it both ways, yeah. And you also do do some coaching, I think. And I I wanted to ask you, what do you find is the biggest issue or difficulty for young people starting out or people any age who are starting out as a writer? I think these days with the proliferation of self-publishing and a lot of people go into self-publishing now, and they think, oh, I've written a book, I'll put it up, I'll, make, I'll sell a lot of copies. And they get very disappointed when they don't sell a copy or they don't rank at all. And I think the hidden secret is that as well as being an author, you equally have to be a marketer and an advertiser. And not only with independently published books, I have several author friends who are published by our traditional big five print publishers in Australia and are disappointed when they don't sell many books because you can't just publish a book and sit back and wait for it to sell. Mm. I, I probably spend two to three to four hours a day marketing seven days a week. Yeah. Yeah, that's which that's, takes away from writing, and that I think that's the the biggest key for people starting out. Yes, you have to have a quality product. Yes, it has to be well edited, but you have to sell your book as well. You have to be willing to do that work, don't you? If you think that you do writing the book, I mean, uh, somebody used the analogy analogy to me once. It's a bit like 
building a house that when you've got the walls and the roof on, you think that you're just about there. But in fact, you might only be 40% there. Well, it's a bit like that with the book. You're, you're hardly even 50% there when you've got the product. That's exactly right. You know, it, with, with independent publishing, you've also got your formatting, your editing. It has to be edited and proofread and formatted and a cover and then uploading. There's a lot of knowledge required to uploading to all the various places. I, I used to upload with draft to digital because they're an aggregator that you'd put it up once and they do it for you. But I now independently publish individually to Apple, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, Amazon, all of the others, Ingram Spark, and that's so time-consuming. Is that because you then have a better chance to market it? It's the marketing, but also I, I got such a shock when um, I realised how much I had paid to draft a digital with their percentage that they took over the years. It was in the thousands, and I thought, no, nah, that's mine. <laughs> so. <laughs> Yeah. So, yes, but yes, the marketing as well. Ingram Spark, who print my books, I sell more print books in the US from my independently published books than I do in Australia, wow. which is interesting. Yeah, yeah. But is. it's all market, market, mm-hmm. market. <laughs> but turning to Annie as reader, because you're not a newcomer on the show, you know we like to do this. I'd just like to really check in with you and, and ask you, what are you currently reading and what would you like to recommend to our listeners? What am I currently reading? I have just read the most beautiful book. I love time travel stories. You know, I would love to go back and be able to time travel. In fact, um, the the book that I'm writing now, seeing I've finished my next print book, is a fourth time travel book in a series that I've written. But the book that I've just read is by Amy Harmon called What the Wind Knows. It was a beautiful book and I just stumbled upon it on Amazon one day and I loved it so much I've actually bought a print copy from Book Depository in the UK. And then when I discovered it on Amazon, I realised it had something like five or 6,000 reviews, so it's quite a well-known book. What genre? Time travel, dual timeline, what I like to do, set in the Easter uprising in Ireland and contemporary New York. Beautiful really more what I meant, yes, the the location, etc., yeah. Beautiful story. Mm. Fantastic. So how do you recharge your creative batteries? You obviously are one of those A-type personalities that just goes for it. How do you recharge? Absolutely. Up until probably this year, I haven't recharged. I've just worked, worked, worked. You know, it, it would be nothing for me when my husband was still going to work before I retired to start work at 7.30 in the morning, work through till 5, have dinner and then work through till 11 p.m. Wow. And do that five, six, seven nights a week. I would really appreciate the occasional author lunch with our author group. That was really exciting to get away from not only the house but out of the study and away from the desk. More recently, as we've travelled this year because we had five months away and I learned how nice it was not to be tied to my desk and we did lots of sightseeing and walking and looking. I've got a couple of inspirations for settings for future books. But this, since we've been back, we've been back a month and I have spent a long time, a lot of that time in the study finishing the next um, HarperCollins book. But I've also balanced it with a lot of walking. Um, we walk our dog for an hour or two every day to the beach. We live right on the beach and I love gardening. So when we finish here today, I'll write my thousand words and then go down to the garden for a couple of hours. Fantastic. That sounds gorgeous. 
So what is next for Annie, the writer? You mentioned that tantalising mention about the book set near Alice. Talk a little bit about that. And Ruby Gap is another dual timeline and it's set in the late 1800s and it's based on a real ruby rush in the late 1800s, ruby rush and gold rush. And, again, that was a serendipitous um, discovery. We just heard of this place, Ruby Gap. We were staying at a cattle station out that way. We had to do 60 kilometres on a four-wheel drive track and we came to this huge sandy riverbed that glowed red with the garnets. And we fossicked for about 15 minutes and came out with a huge plastic bag full of garnets. So I came back and did a lot of research on that and came up with uh, a mystery again and a story. And my husband, who has now that he's retired, read it for me as we travelled. I wrote half of it while we were away and the other half when we got home. He maintains it's my best story yet. So I'm looking forward to that one going to the publisher next week. Sounds fantastic. And what did you do with the big bag of garnets? Oh, I think they're in a drawer in the <laughs> cupboard in the dining room. And uh, this this trip we also went fossicking out at a place called Ruby Vale in Queensland and we came home with black sapphires and blue sapphires and I'd love to set a book out there. I, I started thinking about somebody going missing in one of the mines. <laughs> so always stories. But as well as um, Ruby Gap, which is now finished and off to the publisher. I've also got a list of six books that are currently stewing away. I'm writing the fourth time travel in the Love Across Time series. I'm writing a historical called Wellington Rock, which is set locally in our town. It's always fascinated me. And the one that my readers are really excited about, and I've got lots and lots of pre-orders, is the fifth book in the Porter Sisters series after Kakadu, Daintree, Diamond Sky and Hidden Valley. And that's I'm starting to write that on the 1st of November. And do you write more than one book at the same time? Sometimes I write two People say, how do you do it? And I say, it's just like going to somebody's house. You know who lives here and what they're doing and who they are and then you go to the other house and you meet those people. (laughs) (laughs) I've also got a couple of novellas I have to write. Um, I've actually written this one. I've got a book coming out on the 25th of October with a lot of Kiwi authors, um, Bronwyn Evans and Kendra DeLaga and there's 11 of us, I think, doing a... um, purely little romance box set called Baby It's Hot Outside. (laughs) Cute. A few years ago you did a Christmas one of those, didn't you? I wondered. Yes, we did, yes, with Rosalind James and uh, Chris Pearson. Uh, Lots of, yeah, yeah, I I love my New Zealand author friends and I love coming over there to the conferences. So hopefully next year COVID willing we'll be able to get back. Yeah, that's right. Look, where can readers find you online, Annie? You can find me at my website, which is very easy to find. It's Annie Seaton, A-N-N-I-E-S-E-A-T-O-N.net, because there was already an AnnieSeaton.com. She's an artist in New York, so AnnieSeaton.net. Instagram, SeatonAnnie26. Facebook, Annie Seaton Author. And on my website for my New Zealand and Australian readers who prefer to read print, I have a print bookstore and I've discovered a cheap way of posting to New Zealand. And I'm off to the post office most weeks posting books to readers in New Zealand, which oh, is lovely. Very cool. Very cool. And we'll have links to all of those sites that you've mentioned in the show notes so that people will be able to find them online. For fabulous. Them, which is great. Look, it's been fabulous talking and all the very best with the future. 
looking forward to talking again when you're up to 300 episodes, Jenny. (laughs) (laughs) Amen to that. (laughs) Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audioservices at gmail.com. Or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right, and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.